This is an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. The topic is Sex Addiction in the Family, delivered by Dr. Stephanie Carnes, PhD, during our Restoring Intimacy Conference in September 2015. Other recordings from that event are available on our website, www.healthyintimacy.net. So good morning, everybody. Um, I just want to say it's an honor to be here. I had the opportunity last night to meet the board, uh, Karen and Melody and the others, and what they're trying to do. And it's just really exciting, um, their mission, their vision for this organization. So I'm just delighted that I can be here and be a part of it this morning. Um, Melody shared with you a little bit of my professional background. I'll share a little bit of my personal background with you. I'm a, a child of a sex addict. I'm, I'm Pat's daughter, not his wife. A lot of people get that mixed up. Um, and he's obviously been in recovery. He's very open about his recovery. He's been in recovery for 30 years, maybe even more now. Um, so I learned about uh, you know sex addiction when I was 11 and went through that process. Um, when I was young, and then uh, went on and married a sex and love addict, and um, so that impacted my uh, family as, a, as an adult. So this is something that is really near and dear to my heart, um, very uh, obviously uh, have a, a real passion for what we do. Um, so at, at ITAP, our, our mission is to help train individuals to provide compassionate and effective treatment for sex addicts and their families. And so it's really important to me. It's really important to um, my colleagues, my family. And so um, that's a little bit about who I am. I want to say, um, I want to echo what Melody said earlier. Uh, I have done talks where it's been mixed groups of uh, people struggling with the issue and therapists and, and, and clergy, like the, sort of this environment. And I have had, um, you know, people do get emotional. This is very triggering, especially early in recovery. And I just really would encourage somebody to reach out to the staff because it, it, there really is hope for this. You know, I'm surrounded in my life by people that have really solid recovery and it's possible. And um, I just really encourage you to hang in there and get help if that's where you're at this morning. So um, with that, I'm gonna go ahead and get started. Um, I'm basically going to be doing kind of like a, a very introductory kind of uh, session this morning. We're going to talk about sex addiction. We're going to talk a little bit about partners. I'm going to go into uh, issues with children this afternoon, so I'm not going to touch on that part so much this morning. Um, one of the things that you probably see out there in the media and in the literature is uh, does sex addiction really exist? There's a lot of controversy out there about this. Um, and, it, and really part of that is because we don't have an actual diagnosis right now, as many of you know, it's not in the DSM. And it actually, if you look at the history of the DSM, it used to be. Uh, in the DSM 3R, there was a category called non-paraphilic sexual addiction. There was a lot of controversy around that, and it was actually pulled out of the DSM. Uh, part of that, the, there was some concern um, amongst uh, the sex offender treatment community that it might be used to get sex offenders kind of off the hook, sort of like the insanity plea or something like that, and you know, it would be used in court situations. Um, so really, it, it, it was pulled, and right now we don't have a diagnosis, which has just left the field bereft with a um, lot of controversy. Um, if you look to the literature, the most common terms are sexually compulsive, sexually addictive, 
impulsive and hypersexual behavior disorder. Um, now, one of the things that's very interesting is there's many authors that have conceptualized these different um, constructs, and really, if you look at how they conceptualize them and the criteria, they're almost exactly the same. Um, now, the addiction criteria uh, are a little bit different in that it incorporates the ideas of tolerance, which is like you need more and more porn, for example, to get the same effect, and also withdrawal, which is that there's some distress when you can't access um, your behavior. So that's what sets the addictive model apart from the others. Um, so, but right now, unfortunately, it's not in the DSM. So I'm just going to give a, just a general definition that's really easy to understand. Um, it's sex addiction is a pathological relationship to a mood-altering experience that's sexual in nature that despite adverse consequences, the individual continues to engage in. Now, this def definition is very straightforward. It's a little different than what uh, the American Society of Addiction Medicine has out there. I won't read this whole thing to you, um, but it took 80 neuroscientists in four years to come up with their definition of addiction. Um, and this came out in 2012. And the thing I want to point out to you is that ASAM has, for the, you know, in, in these past recent years, really acknowledged the behavioral addictions as addictions. So as you see in their definitions, um, they include food, sex, alcohol, and other drugs, other behaviors. So there is, um, you know, in particular in the American Society of Addiction Medicine, more and more acceptance of the concept of behavioral addictions and looking at sex and porn as an addictive process. So it's very similar to chemical dependency. Um, it can be used to numb feelings, escape the painful parts of life. It can be very mood-altering, become central to life, feel like the most important need. So what I'm going to do with you this morning is I'm going to share. My, my father and I have um, a little side hobby of art therapy. We sometimes do art, art therapy with our clients. And so we've been collecting drawings uh, over the years. So some of these are his, some of these are mine. Um, and so um, I'm going to share some of the addictive criteria with y'all. And then I will um, share some of these drawings. So, and I, I like using the drawings because it's sort of you get a, a um, a view from the inside of the life of the clients. So um, now we have 10 criteria for sex addiction, and if you would be m meeting three or more of these, you would need further assessment. So if you kind of keep that in mind, most people struggling with sex addiction will be upwards of like six or seven of these criteria. So the first one is that there's a loss of control. This is, there's clear behavior in which you do more than you intend to or you want to. So um, this is one of my, my dad's clients, and you can tell it's an older drawing. Um, he, uh, those over there, those boxes, are actually um, VCR videos, like uh, porn videos. We don't use that kind of technology anymore, obviously. But um, this particular client accrued a huge, amassed a huge collection of videos, and then he would feel, um, he was also a very uh, religious person. He struggled a lot with shame and guilt around the behavior, so he would throw the whole collection out, and then he would accrue the collection again, and then he'd throw the whole collection out. So you can see not only is the porn out of control, but the money is also out of control. Um, and this particular client had um, 
a primary relationship and then was acting out with both genders on the side and spun a really wicked web of lies in his life. Um, and obviously, you know, that's what fuels sex addiction, the secret double life, the lies, and, and often is what's so devastating to family members when they start making discoveries about the secret life. Um, compulsive behavior is the next criteria. This is a pattern of out-of-control behavior over time. So um, this is a client, he was a cocaine addict, uh, alcoholic porn addict. So you can see the razor blade is falling off the table, alcohol and porn there. It says, broken dreams, no friends, no future, death, shame on you, and the devil says, I won you, bastard. So you can see by this drawing, this is not a one-time thing. This is something that has grown out of control, has, has escalated over time. Um, the next one is efforts to stop. So specific repeated uh, attempts to stop the behavior which fail. Um, so this particular client uh, traveled for work, had many relationships in different cities that didn't know about each other. His world came crashing down when the relationship started to discover one another. So you see in his hand, he's got the alcohol also, pharmaceuticals, his uh, suitcase and the broken heart kind of reflecting all of that. And you see him with the hammer there where he's just banging himself up over the head. Um, we, we call that toxic shame. A lot of our addicts struggle with toxic shame of, you know, I just hate myself, I'm worthless, and, you know, if anybody knew about this, nobody would love me as I am. So, um, yeah, very compelling. Um, and this particular client was a physician. He was um, struggling with compulsive masturbation and would do it throughout the day, even like between office visits, like he was getting up boards of like 10 times a day. So, you know, that kind of level of frequency is really out of control. So he went to 12-step uh, meetings. Unfortunately, he got a little unlucky when he first got to his meetings, found some unhealthy groups, and there was acting out in the group. So when he got here, he's depicting here like the lack of tools to be able to stop the behavior. So it's just like, you know, he has no hammer, no tools. And this client's just depicting his head in a vice there. Uh, very difficult, uh, um, a lot of difficulty stopping the behavior. You also have a lot of lost time involved in this. So we see this most with our porn addicts. You know, we, obviously, you, you know, we have some clients spending like six, eight hours a day online. It's not that uncommon. Um, but it can also be in other forms of acting out. Uh, for example, we had a client that was a prostitute user, and he would spend 20, about 20 hours in his car uh, riding around looking for prostitutes and usually would only find one and it would be a sh you know last like a very short period of time but the rest of the time he would be spending driving around in his car avoiding his life escaping kind of in a trance and huge amounts of time lost so um, uh, this client just depicting uh, addict time in real time like it goes by at different speeds uh, the next one is preoccupation, so obsessing about or because of the behavior. And so this client is depicting his preoccupation. Um, he's got marijuana, uh, porn, uh, female body parts, also some food and alcohol, and that's what he's depicting as floating around in his mind. Uh, this client was a voyeur. The squares here represent windows. He's kind of 
depicting himself merged with the windows here. Um, the next criteria is an inability to fulfill obligations. So the behavior interferes with work, school, family, and friends. Um, this was a priest that came in, and on the left-hand side, you could see like the church, the sunshine, the love, all of that. And on the right-hand side, it was mostly porn and prostitution. So you see his, um, he's kind of split in half here, um, depicting that uh, secret double life. So clinically, we call that compartmentalization, when people are able to kind of compartmentalize one part of their life from another part, like it's almost like two different lives. Um, continuation despite consequences is the next one, and that's failure to stop the behavior even though you have problems because of it, social, legal, financial, physical, or work. Uh, this client depicted the myth of Sisyphus, if anybody remembers their Greek mythology, the guy pushing the boulder up the hill, trying to get up, and he's trying to get to the top of the hill, to the holy grail, some sexual experience that's going to leave him fulfilled, take his pain away, what have you. And every time he gets up there, he falls into the fire pit of despair, another empty experience that leaves me hopeless and depressed and hating myself. So what am I going to do? I'm going to walk back up the hill again. So you see that cycle being depicted there. Um, this was a female uh, sex addict. She was also bulimic and abusing pharmaceuticals. So you can kind of see both of those as part of that in this drawing. An escalation, need to make the behavior more intense, more frequent, or more risky. Um, so this particular client, he has an experience with drugs. He uh, uh, writes, reality is distorted, then had an experience with a prostitute, feels shame, pain, loneliness. Then as his drug use is escalating, one pounds, two pounds, three pounds of drugs in his closet. His prostitution use is also escalating. So you see they're kind of escalating in tandem, leaving him shame, pain, anger. And this client also depicting escalation. You can see here the, the little um, guy about ready to fall off the cliff in the video. Um, so that's the client there, and he's about ready to fall off the cliff. Um, there's also losses associated with sex addiction. So this is losing, limiting, or sacrificing valued parts of life, such as hobbies, family, relationships, and work. So this was a monk that came in. Uh, he's depicting his loss of his connection with his higher power here. So the son is sort of the, his higher power, and he's like, you know, uh, very far away. Um, this particular client, um, you can see he's under the glass walkway looking up the skirts, he got arrested for his behavior, his family had to come down to jail, bail him out, so legal consequences in this circumstance. Very challenging for the family. And the last criteria here is withdrawal. So stopping the behavior causes considerable distress, anxiety, restlessness, irritability, or physical discomfort. A lot of people will make the argument, well, sex, sex isn't an addiction because you don't have withdrawal. But there are a lot of other things that are addictions that you don't, like cocaine doesn't have a withdrawal. So you don't, this is a psychological withdrawal where you're feeling distressed and anxious. So um, a lot of our addicts really have a hard time and are white knuckling it um, to not act out. Um, it's especially true with porn addicts. 
Um, this is a female uh, sex addict. So on the right-hand side there, you see alcohol. Um, she was using alcohol. And you also have, like, she was restricting with food. So you have the Diet Cokes there on the bottom. And when she has access to the alcohol, the Diet Cokes, this is how she sees herself in the red dress. Hello? Oh, there we go. When she doesn't have access to it, that's how she sees herself, the skeleton there. All right, so um, one thing I want to say, there's a lot of confusion out in the media about sex addiction. Um, the media just loves this topic, and they love to really um, uh, glamorize it, and it, they don't have a lot of facts. So people will say things like, um, you know, the Craigslist killer is a sex addict, or... Um, uh, the guy Castro that you know locked women in his basement was a sex addict. There's a real difference between sex addiction and sociopathy and antisocial personality. They're not the same. Now you can have some people that have both and have some overlap there, but really these are not the same things. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misunderstanding about that out there. So when you have uh, people with antisocial uh, personality, um, you are more likely, these are some of the things you're more likely to see, more of a history of physical abuse in their background. Um, and a real key factor is lacking remorse and shame and empathy. Um, that's a really key principle, which is very um, not common in your typical sex addict. Um, there's often more force and violence in the offense, histories of other types of offenses. Um, it's more, their behavior is oftentimes more impulsive. It's not about as much about sexual urges. Um, there's a lot of distortions and denial. They tend to be very defended. And there's a decreased amenability for treatment in this population. So I want to contrast this but with sex addicts. Okay, so the typical sex addict has high shame. They hate themselves for their behavior, typically. They feel horrible about it. Um, they have a higher likelihood of emotional and sexual abuse in their background. Neglect is also, the research has borne out that that is also really, really common in the background of sex addicts. Um, they're also, they're highly sexualized. So there's a lot of preoccupation around sexuality and, um, and boundary failure, essentially. Um, they tend to be more likely to be multiply addicted, um, meaning that they will also struggle in other areas of their lives, like chemical dependency, gambling, uh, food, um, even money. Uh, spending, shopping, debting, those types of things. So really the compulsive behaviors sometimes extend into other types of behavioral addictions because it's all operating on the same brain system. So it's, it's more, much more likely. Um, there's less defenses in this population. Unfortunately, there's a high potential for suicide. Um, we just I lost a, um, someone I knew a couple weeks ago, so um, very sad. It's um, really a reality with this. And also an increased amenability for treatment. Now, um, currently, right now, without a diagnosis in the DSM, uh, most therapists have to get creative, which is a bummer, but um, 
It is what it is. And unfortunately, with that, sometimes it's unlikely for them to get insurance reimbursement. So you may find that a lot of therapists specializing in this area don't accept insurance because it's very hard for them to get reimbursement for this. So um, the two most common diagnostic codes that therapists use are other specified disruptive impulse control and conduct disorder or unspecified paraphilic disorder. Um, so, and oftentimes with sex addiction, it's very common for sex addicts to have uh, co what we call co-occurring um, mood disorders. So like an anxiety disorder or depression or dysthymia, things like that. And so a lot of times a therapist is able to use that as a primary diagnosis. But other things that are you know, associated and may need to be examined, I mentioned antisocial personality. Uh, paraphilias, um, these are like the fetishes. Um, so that could be like um, voyeurism, exhibitionism, pedophilia, sadomasochism, transvestic fetishism, that type of thing. So if they fall neatly into one of those categories, which most, you know, most don't, you, you have some overlap, it kind of, it, it depends, but a paraphilia is also a separate thing. So a lot of people with paraphilias aren't sex addicts. So um, also bipolar disorder, mania sometimes can look like sex addiction. Um, a lot of our sex addicts have PTSD, so that's a common diagnosis to have to evaluate. Uh, substances dissociative disorders because of uh, significant trauma histories. Delusional disorders, there are some delusional disorders that in, include sexualizing behavior, and so that can be something that you have to consider. Obsessive compulsive disorders and delirium dementia or other cognitive disorders. Things like brain injuries and strokes and that type of thing can um, cause symptoms that might mimic sex addiction but aren't sex addiction. And so anybody that you know that is uh, trying to uh, be treated as a sex addict that has had a head injury should be evaluated by a neuropsychologist. Okay, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, so um, the paraphilias are not sex addiction, um, and the new definition for paraphilias, they have to have psychological distress in order to be considered uh, for a, a diagnosis. But there are many people that just have one of these issues and are not sex addicts. Um, and then sometimes you have sex addicts that do have these issues, so there's some overlap there. So um, the next section I want to talk about is etiology, which is um, you know what contributes to the development of a sex addiction. So we're going to kind of touch on three different areas in particular, trauma and abuse, um, biology, neuroscience, sexual conditioning, and family dynamics and attachment. We have research in all three of these areas, um, so I'm going to kind of share a little bit about that with you. Um, so trauma. Um, this is from a study that Pat did, one of the original studies in Don't Call It Love. He found with his sex-addicted population extremely high rates of trauma. He had 72% had physical abuse, 81% sexual abuse, 97% had experienced emotional abuse. And we see this um, 
ongoing in the literature regularly. So this was just another study. This is Eli Coleman. Uh, he comes from a compulsivity model. He said, uh, compulsive sexual be behavior has been strongly linked to early childhood trauma or abuse, highly restricted environments regarding sexuality, dysfunctional attitudes about sex and intimacy, low self-esteem, anxiety, and depression. Um, here's another one, another quote from the literature. Sexual addiction is strongly anchored in shame and trauma. Research conducted over the last 15 years has consistently shown the prevalence of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse in this population. And this was in just a few more recent studies um, found that in 39% of gay and bisexual men had experienced sexual abuse. These are largely consistent with previous uh, findings of samples with compulsive sexual behavior. And they reported that childhood sexual abuse was in uniquely associated with maladaptive sexual behavior um, in the previous literature supporting childhood abuse as a possible etiological factor in compulsive sexual behavior development. So there's been a lot of studies on this and you know, we know that this trauma contributes to the development. Um, when children are traumatized, they feel uh, they're being treated as though they're worth less. They internalize that they're worth less. They internalize that shame, and then they, ha then they medicate it. And so it's just a progression that happens over time. Uh, here's just a few patient drawings. Uh, this was one of my clients that he was... Um, when he was young, he, his the, during the family gatherings, this is Christmas here, the family, the grandfather would take him into the bathroom and molest him when all the other family members were in the other room. And he was always wondering, like, why is this, you know, why isn't anybody coming into here to help me? That's what the SOS is, where, you know. And um, his siblings came to our family week process, and they found that um, they said, we didn't know what was going on. We just didn't know what to do about it. Grandfather was this very intimidating figure in the family. And so he was kind of sacrificed. And so this is his, the red there is his shame. Uh, this was another, one of my clients, this was a gang rape experience when the client was young. And this client had a severe sexual trauma history, and he was actually cutting himself. And so you can see the cutting behavior there. So with this trauma, you have such high rates of shame. And so it's a very common theme in the drawings for the clients. So this client here, the, the little purple guy in the shirt, that's the client there, and the shame is dumping on him. And I showed this to some, a group of uh, male clients once, and one of them said, is that my mother driving that truck? <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> okay, so I also want to address the issue of neuroscience. We've had, uh, fortunately, some amazing research has come out in the last year, especially, um, last year and a half. So very exciting progress in this area. So... Um, Addictions start in the reward center. This is neuroanatomically known as the mesolimic dopamine pathway, which connects the ventral tegmental area to the nucleus incumbens. These areas are tied to impulsivity, pleasure reinforcements, learning, and reward. It also interacts with the amygdala, hippocampus, frontal cortex. And all these areas together modulate pleasure, memory, attention, and motivation. 
So um, this part of our brain has always served an evolutionary purpose. A lot of people call this our reptilian brain. It's a very powerful part of our brain. It's involved with drives. And so when, we, when this part of our brain is activated, it's thought to uh, feel more powerful than what we call our frontal lobes, which is our, our executive functioning, which is impulse control, decision making, um, judgment, those types of things, critical thinking is in our frontal lobes. This does not have to do with that area of the brain. This is the base part of the brain, and it's very powerful. So it, this encourages the activities necessary for survival um, and food, sex, and uh, you know the natural addictions. So when you have addiction, it involves several different um, ideas. The first one is sensitization, in which the repeated administration of a stimulus results in the amplification of a response. So our brains become very highly sensitive to cues in our environment because of this. These cues create cravings, and those cues become more compelling than anything else in the environment. So it's very hard for addicts when they're in early recovery to, they, they will struggle, struggle with triggers. Same is true with chemicals. These cues for chemical dependency very strong. It's hard for people um, to resist those. With desensitization, back to desensitization, the more that is consumed, the less activity you have in your reward circuits. So basically, you become less sensitive. Your brain readjusts to the overproduction of dopamine, and the less sensitive you are to pleasure. And so you have a tolerance that develops. Um, and finally, hypofrontality we see, which is a decreased activity in the frontal lobes that I was just talking about. Okay, so Kube talks about this, a very famous addiction neuroscientist, Kube, talks about the dark side of addiction. This is when the reward center can't be returned to that initial set point, that homeostatic set point, and enters uh, what he calls an allostatic state. So the reward system now has an altered set point. So initially the addict was using to feel good, then they're just using to feel better or feel normal. So the set point gets altered. So withdrawal is not the physiological effects of the substance. It's also the negative feelings and affect that people have from being at this set point that is now a lower level of dopamine in the brain. So this is just a quote. The truth is that just like sex, a lot doesn't make you a sex addict. Uh, or, I'm sorry, the truth is just like liking sex a lot doesn't make you a sex addict, and just cheating or engaging with prostitutes or other antisocial behavior doesn't make you a sex addict. If you are a sex addict, just like a heroin addict, you are at a point where you are having sex not because you are deriving pleasure from it, but because you need to do that just to fall asleep at night and face the day and not to have withdrawal symptoms. So while true sex addiction is rare, I disagree with him with that, um, it is one of many very real addictions that stem from the way a human brain feels or doesn't feel pleasure. So you can actually see uh, the dopamine in PET scans of the brain. So on the top, the, the red there 
represents dopamine receptors. And that's a control participant, a, um, a normal, uh, non-addicted client. Um, you can also see in alcoholic, cocaine addict, and um, obese clients, um, they see this with uh, bulimia and binge eating disorder, not with anorexia. So anorexia is sort of a different category. But with uh, food, with chemicals, and I'm going to show you in a minute also with sex, we have that reduced dopamine system in the brain. So um, lots of substances can increase that dopamine system. You can see this, the line that's spiking up, that is uh, influx of dopamine. So you've got amphetamines there, cocaine, nicotine, alcohol, well, you also have it with food and with sex. Same kind of release of dopamine in the brain. So um, there's some new research that is looking at the genetics of this. Pat's actually, hope, we're hoping that he gets a Fulbright to go do a, um, a genetic study coming up soon. Um, but we're looking that, that, that there may be a pr genetic predisposition to sex addiction. Um, the carriers of the DRD2A1 gene have fewer dopamine receptors. Um, this causes them to have uh, more disruption in the mesolimbic reward system, and it results in a hypodopaminergic -dop state, meaning not enough dopamine. Um, and this is, would be something that you were born with, a congenital chemical imbalance. We find that this gene is overrepresented in samples of drug and alcohol addiction, gambling, compulsive sexual behavior, compulsive gaming, work, and shopping. Now, it's not to say that the environment doesn't play a huge part. Um, in alcoholism research, what they estimate, they've followed generation after generation after generation of alcoholic families, and they feel about that the development of alcoholism is about 40% genetic and about 60% environmental. So they've kind of teased that out with statistics. So you may have a genetic predisposition, but the environment definitely alters the course of that. Um, all right, we've also, so this is one of the studies that came out this year um, that uh, there's been a lot of uh, exciting research coming out of Europe. Uh, that's where most of the recent research is. This is Simone Kuhn's research. Um, showed that brain structure um, was changed, basically. And so what she found was higher hours per week and more years of porn viewing correlated with a reduction in gray matter in sections of the reward circuitry, which translated into a sluggish reward activity or a numbed pleasure response, which is what I was just talking to you about, desensitization, a numbed response. So she states that that could mean that regular consumption of porn more or less wears out your reward system. So she states, we assume that subjects with high porn consumption need increasing stimulation to receive the same amount of reward. That's tolerance. Um, and then this was a study that was very exciting this year, Valerie Voon out of Cambridge. She's a, a very prestigious addiction researcher. And she found that compulsive porn users react to, 
to porn cues in the same way that drug addicts react to drug cues. So compulsive porn users craved porn, had greater wanting of it, but did not have a greater desire or liking than controls, which this finding aligns perfectly with the current model of addiction. So, um, uh, and then the last thing that she found also that was of note is one, she's one of the first studies that really looked at uh, rectal dysfunction and noted that about half of the subjects in her study also had porn-induced erectile dysfunction. So she writes, our findings of enhanced attentional bias and compulsive sexual behavior subjects su suggest possible overlaps with enhanced attentional bias observed in studies of drug cues and disorders of addiction. These findings converge with recent findings of neural reactivity to sexually explicit cues in CSB in a network similar to that implicated in drug cue reactivity studies and provide support for incentive motivation theories of addiction underlying aberrant responses to sexual cues and compulsive sexual behavior. So we're really starting to see some of the neuroscience evidence pan out to the area of addiction. My hope is that uh, porn and sex will get classified under the addictive disorders section of the DSM. Initially, they were looking at putting it under the sexual disorders section as a hypersexual behavior disorder. My hope is that it will go in the addiction area with some of these new findings. <laughs> I do have a little bit of a video clip here that I'd like to share with you. This is Valerie Voon and her research. It was done by a guy who was a, uh, did a documentary, and he worked in um, uh, the sex industry doing magazines, print, for like 15 years. And then he had a child, and he had a, had a change of heart about uh, what his profession was. And he created this documentary. And as part of this, you'll see um, Valerie Voon talking about her research. So very exciting new research by Dr. Voon. So in summary, this uh, you know that our sex addicts experience powerful sexual conditioning and learning, neuroplastic change, and actual structural changes in the brain. Um, and while there are fewer studies in compulsive sexual behavior, you know, a lot of, uh, there, there are critics out there of the whole sex addiction concept. And one of the things say, well, there's, there's just a few studies and whatnot, but they are embedded in a very large literature on behavioral addictions. There's over 70 brain studies on internet addiction. There are n hundreds of studies on food addiction from an addiction perspective. And so you really, it's, it's embedded in a very large research base. Um, and the final area on etiology I wanted to talk about is just on families and attachment. Um, one of the things, this is the circumplex model. Um, it, uh, I'm, I won't go into the whole thing, but it summarizes uh, your, there are 16 different uh, dimensions. You take a test, you get plotted on this graph, and it, it describes family types ranging from disengaged to enmeshed to chaotic to rigid. And this, this tool has been used in lots of different types of research. Alcoholic families um, tend to fall in the more extreme areas, uh, these yellow age areas here. 
Uh, schizophrenic families tend to fall more in the extreme areas. Sex addicts fall in one quadrant of the extreme areas, which is very interesting because it's, um, it's uh, I'm, not, I'm not seeing another population fall in one quadrant. So it's the rigid disengaged family, whoops, rigid disengaged family system. So if you think about what people learn in a rigid disengaged family system, there's lot, not a lot of demonstration of how to have healthy attachment, healthy connection, intimacy, um, those types of things. And also with the rigidity comes oftentimes not a lot of communication about healthy sexuality. And so this appears to be somewhat of a um, influence in the development of addiction over time, this type of structure. So, you know, we really encourage our clients to work on, you know, more fle more flexibility, um, you know, open dialogue and communication and, and increasing intimacy and, and connection. We also see that attachment varies with sex addicts. Because of the trauma history, I believe, um, we have you know, uh, sex addicts have higher rates of uh, difficulty with attachment. Um, so really a lot of people look at sex addiction as an intimacy disorder because there's uh, the difficulty with attachment. So this is um, one of our studies that we did. The black, this is called a Cartesian plane. It kind of shows you where the sample lands on the map of attachment styles. So you have, uh, this is Fraley's uh, definition of attachment, which includes secure, preoccupied, dismissive avoidant, and fearful avoidant. If you look at the men and women in the, reg in the normal population, you have a much larger uh, body of people landing in that secure attachment quadrant. And you can see how the sample moved um, when it was men, which is the dark gray, and female sex addicts is the lighter gray into some of the other quadrants. So we have very, and this, is, this study has been, uh, attachment styles and sex addiction has been, there's about four or five studies on this that has consistently shown that sex addicts uh, tend to have less secure attachment styles. So it's another area of research. Okay, so now I want to completely change directions and talk a little bit about the partners and what the partners experiences when they're going through this process of learning about sex addiction in their family and what that's like for them. So um, I created a six-stage model. Um, think of it as the stages of grief. There are you know, no specific time periods for each one of these stages. You can kind of progress and then turn around and something can happen and you can revert to kind of a previous stage. So um, these are the different stages. I'm gonna take them one at a time. Kind of look like that on a graphic. So the developing stage. So this is the time when the partners don't know about the sex addiction. And again, this is sort of a typical process. There, your experience may um, be different than what I'm going to share, but uh, this is very common for, for this type of process for partners. So um, the developing stage is the time leading up to when the partner realizes that this is an addiction. And uh, it can be months or, ev or even years. And partners sort of fall into two camps. You have those that knew nothing 
of about the sex addiction. And so when they make a discovery, it's like the rug is completely pulled out from underneath of them. So I'll give you an example. I had a partner that I worked with and her husband was a minister and he left his cell phone on the table um, uh, you know upside down she normally didn't have his cell phone and she came in and picked up his cell phone and there was this cd sexualized text message on there and at the end of it it said do you want to meet up and she just sat there with it at the table for a while thinking about it and then she responded and she said sure where and arranges this meeting at, at a hotel. Yeah, the, the person suggested this hotel. So she went to the hotel, walked around the parking lot looking for somebody that looked like they maybe might be a prostitute or something, and saw somebody waved in the car, and then she dialed the phone and it rang in the car. So she found this woman and then grilled her, got all this information, and then went home, got on the computer, found more stuff, this all happened in one day. She'd been married for 10 years, knew nothing. And in one day, her whole world came crashing down. And so you have some that know nothing and then make a discovery. Um, that's a smaller group, I think. Um, it's more common for partners to fall in the second group, which is um, they know some of it. They know maybe about the strip clubs or they know about some porn or they know about one affair. And they, but they don't, like make, maybe they know the tip of the iceberg, but they don't know everything that's underneath of that. And sometimes when that's happening, partners will find maybe they minimize like, oh, well, all guys use porn during this stage. They're kind of might minimize that, uh, deny, blame themselves, and sometimes even join in with the addict sexually to try and accommodate the addict. So um, during the developing stage, it's not uncommon for partners to believe the lies that the addicts are telling. So obviously the addicts can be very persuasive. And I had an addict once who had a calendar of all the places he was, he was going and a second calendar of all the places he told his wife he was going. So he was meticulous with covering his tracks. Um, and oftentimes when the, you know, the partners want to believe the addicts, the partners want to believe the tr that, they're, that this isn't a problem and that this is not. So during this stage, there's typically that. And one of the things that I see with partners is that there'll be the addict it will be starting to crash and burn in their addiction. And so as the addiction is starting to progress, there'll be unavailability, there'll be mood swings, there'll be chaos, there'll be unmanage, you know, unmanageability, financial issues, lack of accountability, and distress in the relationship. And partners oftentimes when they look back on it, they say, I'm not, I don't know why I was putting up with that, because we were not happy. I was not happy and I was tolerating this kind of unacceptable behavior. And so they knew something was wrong. They often uh, doubted themselves, didn't trust their gut feelings, were second guessing, knew something wasn't quite right. So there's distress oftentimes in the coupleship during this stage. Now one of the things that happens is that this is a very common time for couples to seek couples therapy. And unfortunately the therapist will know what the partner knows. And so therapy will go nowhere because the, the, the therapist will not know what they're dealing with. 
And so I would just say, if that's any of you, don't lose hope in couples therapy because it can be really effective. So um, a lot of people say, well, we tried couples therapy, but the therapist has to know what's going on in order to make progress. Um, then there's some sort of crisis that happens where the facade of the addiction comes into light. So this is the shocks, uh, the crisis stage. And this is where the partner realizes this is more than just an affair or a strip club or a little porn. This is starting to, this is starting to put together like an addiction. This is, this is more. And so sometimes there's a catalytic event. It may be a disclosure. It may be a discovery um, in which the partner finds out that there's more. And partners are very resilient, and one of the things that they are a very common coping mechanism is information seeking. Partners want answers typically, and it's usually, um, it's not uncommon for them to be the ones that are going online, buying the books, finding the therapist, very proactive bunch. And so they want answers typically, and there's a lot of emotional turmoil at this stage. Um, so the typical path of disclosure from the addict is usually deny everything, disclose what you can get, think you can get away with, disclose a bit more, get confronted as more things come out, and then disclose all. And there should be a button underneath that says repeat. <laughs> yes. When I share this with the clients, they all nod their heads. And, it's just extremely common process. Unfortunately, we call this staggered disclosure. So this is, um, it's tempting for the unfaithful partner to attempt damage control by initially revealing only some information or none at all. And fear of the partner's response um, and fear of hurting the partner are the most common reasons for minimizing the disclosure. Unfortunately, this absolutely destroys the trust in the relationship because the addict is saying, no, really, that's it. No, no, now that's it. And the partner's like, I don't know, what am I supposed to believe, right? So the, this was a study in 2002. It's kind of old. The majority of addicts, about 60%, and about 70% of partners reported there had been more than one major disclosure. I actually think that seems low to me because it, when they, it, certainly in a clinical population, it's got to be more like 80 or 90% because they come to, the clients come to therapy after this has already happened, typically. So, um, yeah. Um, so we talk about disclosure as a process and not an event because it typically, un more and more information typically unfolds over time. And so like even in the best circumstances, that's the case. Like I, for example, I worked with a couple outpatient and um, he, they, they did great. They were like really models of recovery. You know, he was doing his own recovery, very proactive. She got into her recovery. They, they were doing couples work, very proactive. A year afterwards, um, this is just an example, you know, they were having a dinner party. He had some of his recovery friends over, and he and one of the guys in the kitchen were talking about an experience he had with a prostitute, and the wife hadn't heard that story. And so, she, you know, she was upset. It was like one more piece of another piece of disclosure that she hadn't had. So when you have a secret life like that, it takes time for all of that to come open. And so to... You know, we uh, recommend facilitated disclosure process, but it is still tends to be an unfolding process over time. 
Okay, so after, you know, the crisis stage, the partners are t tend to be in shock. So this is the feelings, the emotions that occur as a result of the initial discovery and disclosure. Um, one very common response for partners is a, a numbness, sort of like a numbness, uh, wanting to be distractive, not wanting to deal with it, kind of wanting to um, avoid or check out. It's a trauma response. It's a normal reaction to having something this traumatic ha happen in your life. Um, but that's very common. Feeling victimized. Um, suspiciousness about what's going on with the addict. Fear about slips, the future, what's going to happen. Um, anger, hostility, self-righteousness, blame, criticism. Uh, ruminating, also a common trauma response, um, you know, intrusive thinking, we call that. Um, and really what partners want is the truth, typically. They want accountability and they want disclosure from the addict in most cases. Um, and just a lot of distrust at this point in time. Um, this was actually a billboard that was up in Minneapolis. It says, hi, Stephen, do I have your attention now? I know all about her, you dirty, sneaky, immoral, unfaithful, poorly endowed slime ball. Everything's caught on tape. Your soon-to-be ex-wife, Emily. P.S. I paid for this from our joint bank account. <laughs> no. Yes. It is funny, but on the, on the flip side, you've got to see that obviously this is a, you know, ter obviously this couple's terribly in, in a lot of pain. So in, in crisis. And it's not uncommon to get, you know, very, a um, lot of conflict, a lot of intensity, a lot of emotion during this time. So typically during the shock stage, uh, partners want disclosure of all previously concealed behavior and information. And the reason cited is to make sense of the past, validate this, their suspicions, assess the risk of STD exposure, and assess the partner's relationship commitment. So. All of this is kind of followed by grief, uh, the grief stage. If oftentimes when the partner is early on, they're um, very, very, um, you know, very, very upset, but they kind of, you know, pulled it together. And then what's underneath of that is the pain. And eventually that pain has to come out. And they have a lot of losses when it comes to sex addiction. They too have, uh, experience all the consequences that the addict receives. So if there's financial consequences, job loss, relationship losses, um, impact on the family, sometimes families have to move, whatever that is, there's, they're having to bear that as well. And um, also I hear partners talking a lot about sort of having to let go of you know, what I thought our relationship was going to be and the, sort of that dream and having to reinvest in, in what the relationship, how the relationship is going to be in the future, what that's going to be like. So um, that can be followed with feelings of depression. Ambivalence about the relationship is pretty common. So a lot of partners really questioning whether I even want to do this recovery thing or not. Is this really, is there really recovery from sex addiction? Does that work? Is it successful? Um, an increased, uh, usually at the grief stage, a lot of times there's a lot of focus on what the addict's doing in the first 
couple stages. And then once they get to grief, their you know, partners tend to be more self-reflective and kind of, how is this impacting me? Takes a while before they're kind of, when this grief is coming up, before they're um, more focused on their hurt feelings. Um, this was just a partner drawing. You can see like this is what they, the dream of what they thought they had. Um, now, I want to say that, you know, we talk about with addiction recovery for addicts that it can be a three to five year process. And I think the same is true for partners. It can take a long time to move through those first few stages. This is very traumatic for them. So um, the repair stage could be several years later. Um, so this is a, uh, typically a lot more introspection, better, you know, kind of in a um, position to make decisions about the relationship. Um, they more in deeper insight into the, uh, their role in any dysfunction in the relationship. More willing to look at family of origin themes, look at prior losses. Typically, a lot more strength and coping skills. They start to get good at boundary setting. Um, with the addict, which is a real challenge sometimes in the early stages, and more emotional stability. And then the final stage is the grief stage, which is, um, you know, you know, or the growth stage. And that's when you, you know you see this a lot when you hear people say things like, you know, had this not happened to us, we would have never gotten to this point in our relationship, or I never would have, um, you know, grown in the ways that I did, or, you know, I would have never started this, and this has been such an amazing part of my life. So you'll start to see, like, the partners looking at some of the gifts that the addiction has brought into their lives and how they've grown from it. So. Okay, so I do want to talk about, for just a few minutes, uh, the, about the fact that this can be very traumatic for partners. Um, there, um, this is a, what we call betrayal trauma. And this is a betrayal trauma is a sense of being harmed by the intention, intentional actions or omissions of a trusted person. Um, like includes harmful disclosures, disloyalty, infidelity, dishonesty, they can be traumatic and cause considerable distress, like shock, grief, morbid preoccupation, damaged self-esteem, self-doubt, anger. So I'm, I'm gonna skip over a couple of these. So one of the things, this was a study that was really one of the first studies that was done on this. Um, Barbara Steffens and her associate Rennie did a study in 2006, and it looked at uh, partners post-disclosure. And it found that they had measurable PTSD symptoms and measurable symptoms of acute stress disorder. In her study, about 70% of partners met criteria for PTSD. So it was really the first time um, that people kind of turned the lens and really started paying attention to how this is impacting the partners. And uh, really was a gift to the field when, when that study came out. Also, uh, Omar Manwala uh, started writing. He's in, in my book, he wrote a chapter on his sexual trauma model. And what he did is he had met with partners of, of sex addicts and asked them, how has this impacted your sexuality? And he did transcribe, it was qual uh, qualitative, and he transcribed the themes that came out of that were that it was 
um, it impacted them and like had things like body image issues and shame and feelings of obligation and all of these things. And when he paired that up with sexual trauma victims, other like from with rape trauma syndrome and other types of sexual abuse, he found striking similarities. So his work kind of drew conclusions that this is a sexual trauma to the partners too, kind of robs them, wounds them in the area of their sexuality. And so we really started to look at at that, and so more, more, more practitioners these days. Most, I would say, most practitioners really uh, attend to this as a trauma experience for partners. So this was just a quote: "Trauma fractures comprehension as a pebble shadows a windshield. The wound at the site of impact spreads across the field of vision, obscuring reality and challenging belief." I really think that's true for partners because their whole their vision get is, of their life is so incredibly impacted. This was a quote from one of um, the clients in my study. My life has been turned upside down, but because everything about sex addiction and its victims is kept a secret, I'm denied the usual support of friends and family, despite the fact that my world has been shattered while my husband's life goes on like usual without any external consequences or changes for him. And I think a lot of partners feel like that. And, and sort of like, do you guys remember the Truman Show? Like where this whole time he's on TV and he's like, he, he thinks his reality is one thing and, and he wakes up to find out it's something completely different. It seems like, I think it, I kind of liken it to that for partners where they're believing their life is one thing and all of a sudden it's like their whole world is blown apart and it is a completely different reality. And it's a shock. It's a real shock. Um, and I think that there's, uh, you know, like I said before, not every partner is going to have uh, PTSD. Uh, but there's some, here's some of the factors that I think that contribute to it. Um, the amount of deception that has been involved, the length of time of the deception, if it had been years and years, um, the amount of gaslighting. So um, gaslighting is a form of covert emotional abuse done um, in the addictive process in which the addict tries to uh, cover up their behavior by with some lies that is very crazy making for the recipient. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, like I had a couple that I worked with and there had been multiple affairs in this relationship and then the addict got into a period of recovery and um, the partner started to suspect that the addict was um, starting to act out again. So uh, she was doing some detective behaviors and the addict found out about this and he turned around and he said, you are such a grudge holder. When are you going to get over this? You, you are never going to let us heal from this. You keep on bringing it up and, you know, you know, just kind of turned it around on her. And the very next morning, she found out he was having an affair. So that's gaslighting. It's like, I'm going to make you nuts because I'm denying your reality. And so that's a very, very um, crazy-making process for the partner. And there are some addicts that don't do it at all and there are other addicts that are master gaslighters and that kind of psychological manipulation is very damaging to the partner so um, that increases the level of trauma 
um, the type of acting out or offending behavior that the addict does. So, you know, if the, if the addict has got an interest in minors or acting out with the same sex or doing something deviant, um, that is harder for the partner to digest than um, some of the more vanilla type behaviors. Um, their exposure level to the acting out. I had, like, for example, just a partner that I was working with very recently who did the classic thing of coming home and walking in her bedroom with the addict and with the partner, the other, having someone in their bed. And so she had the visual, she had the whole experience of that discovery right there. That's really traumatic to have that kind of discovery process. Um, the public embarrassment. If, there's, if it's out in the open, that's traumatic. Impact on the children, impact on the finances. So um, for partners, this, this type of trauma creates a lot of, uh, it can create some symptoms for them. Um, things like um, they can have a trauma repetition. For example, they are repeating past uh, traumas in their lives. Sometimes we'll have partners that will get in similar relationships repeatedly. They can have uh, other addictions and comorbidities, um, like eating disorders are not uncommon, uh, drinking or using for partners not uncommon. Um, anger, hostility, rage, that's a common response to trauma. Um, they can be struck, kind of stuck in that crisis or shock stage. Um, my experience when partners have a lot of their own trauma history, like past trauma history in their childhoods and that type of thing, it's harder for them to move through that shock and crisis stage. Um, difficulty trusting anyone, including the therapist. Sometimes it's hard after you've had a major betrayal in your life. Um, to want to go in and have another intimate relationship with anybody and to make yourself vulnerable. So to go into a therapist's office and talk about it and talk about your feelings when you've just been traumatized is a hard thing to do. It takes a lot of courage. Um, isolating, distracting, very common for partners to want to throw themselves into their work, throw themselves into the care of their children, you know, kind of keep on, you know, pulling, pulling themselves uh, up by their bootstraps, so to speak. Um, Safety-seeking behaviors, I call them safety-seeking behaviors. Um, this is like detective work um, where the partner is trying to find out what the addict is doing. Uh, or if they're still sober, email, you know, checking emails, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I think for many partners, that's a trauma response as well, that they're wanting to not be hurt again. Um, obsessing, ruminating, um, again, another trauma response. That intrusive thinking is very common in trauma. Reactivity, paralysis dissociation, and sometimes increased um, dependence. So trauma has a huge impact on our partners, too. This was a partner drawing. Um, the black there represents shame. And so she's feeling like she's just bound up in shame as well. OK, oh, we actually did those. OK, so you have your addict that is kind of in this you know, space of feeling a lot of shame. You have their partners that are devastated. This partner drawing says, take no prisoners. 
And so you end up with a major rupture in the coupleship, in the attachment bond of the coupleship. We call this a relational trauma, a trauma to the relationship. Here you see the partner is like cowering in the corner behind the door in the attics on the computer in the other room. So um, this one says, I'm having my wedding ring melted down into a bullet. <laughs> So it's very common in the couple to have the partner confront, demand, the addict, deny, avoid. You kind of get this system set up until you have a facilitated disclosure, until the addict is really into recovery and being open and honest with the partner. And so we recommend facilitated disclosures um, you know, with therapist assistance that is highly structured and supportive of the partner in the process. And so we do a whole uh, process that we plan out and make sure that the partner is empowered in the process and also very much supported in the process. So uh, in the dynamics of the couples, you often have increased anxiety, self-doubt, questioning, lack of trust, hostility. Uh, one uh, participant in Jennifer Schneider's study said, I couldn't concentrate. I got into two car accidents and did things like put milk in the cupboard and cereal in the refrigerator. So this is often where you end up, couples therapy not going well. So um, it's really important, in my opinion, that you have the three-legged stool in the healing process so that the addict has their own therapist, their own recovery process, which includes support groups and 12-step. So cutting-edge therapy for sex addiction includes group. And there's just no way around it. They, the addicts need accountability, and they need other people in recovery around them supporting them. And that's a really critical part of treatment. Um, now, for the partners, I also really recommend that they get into their own individual therapy and also their own support group, if possible, for them, too. It's a huge relief for partners to be around other people that are having the same experience and be able to connect and get support from them. So I think that's really important. And then I'm a big fan of, of integrating couples therapy uh, pretty early on in the process. Typically before disclosure, that looks more like couples crisis management. And then after disclosure, you can kind of get into the meat of actually doing some deeper work. So I do have some time now for question and answer. I want to just, again, I say uh, there is hope. So there, um, you know, don't, don't lose hope. There's a, uh, recovery is possible. And I'm going to talk in my next session about recovery. So um, I'll go ahead and take some questions. I just want to comment and thank you for reiterating the help for our partners. So early on in recovery, well, the disclosure, family and if you have any friends that even knew, it's so easy for them to say, well, we'll just get over it and love him and he's going to be better. Right. And that is so damaging to the partner and to understand that the partner needs time and healing. So thank you for addressing that. Yeah, unfortunately, there's, it's, it has not been emphasized in our field for, I mean, the last, I'd say the last seven years have gotten a lot better. But in the past, it was sort of like the addict had, um, you know, 12 steps, support groups, all of these books and resources, and the partner got disclosure. And that's kind of how it was. And now, fortunately, the partners have books, the partners have resources, they have groups that are out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you. I've got another comment over here. 
You talked uh, about the desensitization towards the early part of the presentation um, after repeated, repeated exposure. But then later in the video, when it talks about how the brain of addicts was hypersensitive, can you explain yeah. that? So what you're seeing when the, when the brain lights up, that's the, the, that's the sensitization. That's the being respond, responding to cues. That, is, that particular study was looking at how um, they responded to cues in their environment. Now the desensitization, if you wanted to look at that in a, at a brain scan, you would see like the lack of dopamine in the brain like you would in those PET scans that I showed you, that decrease in dopamine where you need more and more. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, thank you. Thank you. Um, when you talked about the, the neurobiology and the gray matter of the brain, um, what's the physiological recovery process for the brain? So um, my comments are going to be based more on what we know about alcoholism and drug addiction because we do have, in, in recovery from chemicals, we have a lot of data of what that looks like in the brain. We don't have that kind of data with sex addiction, unfortunately. Um, the brain is very neuroplastic and it heals. Um, now with chemical recovery, you have a period of, of like two years, they call it post-acute withdrawal, in which the dopamine system is still um, very uh, depleted and it takes a long time for that to heal and get back to normal. And there are, you know, uh, differing studies, uh, differing da different data out there as to whether it ever actually gets back up to that original baseline amount. Um, but you see huge improvements. You can see that, that like they have scans, like the one I, I shared with you earlier, where you had um, no dopamine and then do it at four months and you see a little bit of red come back and then you see it at a year and more red comes back and then you see it like and you're, you see huge improvements over time. So the, the brain is neuroplastic, it heals, um, but unfortunately we don't have any data specifically on sex addicts for that. I'm guessing, what I'm guessing from your question is, is sort of uh, the issue of when it goes on too long. Um, and what I found with that is um, that partners that kind of really get stuck there are ones that have complex trauma. And so c complex trauma is trauma that is um, uh, recurrent and repetitive and prolonged. So they have a history of being uh, abandoned by attachment figures um, or history of betrayals in the past. And um, it's in, in those circumstances, it's very hard. Um, for, they, they need treatment for complex trauma. And so they need to be with a trauma specialist, in my opinion. So, um, and I think, you know, other than that, I think there's just, a, you know, so many factors that um, go into how the partner, you know, processes it, you know, how traumatizing it was, how difficult the information was, are there other problems going on in the relationship? I mean, it, there's, it's just so, so many complexity of factors. But when I find it goes on for a really long time and the partner is really stuck, yeah, complex trauma is my, my experience clinically, yeah. Into a brand new relationship? Yes, there should be, just, in my opinion, 
is that new sex addicts in recovery should be very careful when they're dating and work with their therapist and have a dating plan and um, do it very slowly and should disclose that they're a sex addict to the new partner before having sex with them and before getting you know physically involved on that level and yeah i think they should do a disclosure and be open in a new relationship yep there has been one study on disclosure one there are three articles on children and i wrote one of them um so a, a lot of there's a lot out there on conceptualization and criteria and and which is very very important because I think that we're starting to get to the point now in research where we're starting to see typologies kind of break out which is very interesting so that's really important um, but it's just this this area because you know in the 80s when this was all coming out there was so much uh, this doesn't exist. Sex addiction is not a real thing. And there was such a push in, um, you know, by a lot of misinformed, unfortunately, people that this doesn't exist. Um, and th that people are still out there today doing that. There has been only one federally funded study that's going on right now. Just one. There's never been, other than this other one, never been a federally funded research study in this area. So, I mean, if you look at psychology and research, this is probably one of the few areas where we just have like, and, you know, big holes, really big holes. It's a huge area. And, but there is plenty out there to show that it exists. You know, I mean, there's, there's probably a thousand articles now at this point. So we have more articles in this area than some, it, the, the DSM committee said that they didn't put it in the DSM because there's a uh, lack of research. But there's more articles written on sex addiction than many of the d disorders that are already included in the DSM. So it's, you know, it's a very political uh, and emotionally charged topic because of the content. And so it's a constant uh, battleground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You do have overlap in the population. So you do have sex offenders that are sex addicts. But what you're looking for there is like the criteria that we looked at before, is it compulsive? It, are they using the behavior as self-medicating to like decrease their anxiety? How, how much time is it? How, are they preoccupied by it? You wanna look at the addiction criteria to determine if they're an addict or not. So we have very sophisticated uh, you know, testing techniques now to do that. And so there are ways that you can test and differentiate, is this somebody that's just more of an offender or is this a sex addict that's an offender and you know you also have sex addicts that are really offenders you know so it's kind of like there's there's overlap and distinction in the group but that's the kind of thing you're going to be looking for how compulsive is it is there a pattern is it you know you know are they medicating with it yeah yep. think about think about the doctor recently you probably heard this in the news that was arrested at one of the major hospital in the Northeast that had 9,000 images. Who was an OBGYN? Did you guys hear about this? 9,000 images of vaginas that he had taken with his like 
pen or something and he had categorized them all at home. Once you have somebody that has 9,000 images of something, you know that that's a compulsive pattern, right? <laughs> so, he, and he was a voyeur. Voyeurism and exhibitionism are not what they used to be these days. You, you, you know, people used to have to do the flashing thing in the park or the peeping through the window. That's all advanced with technology now. And so it looks different, but it's the same thing. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm out of time. I want to thank you all. Appreciate it. This has been Dr. Stephanie Karn speaking on sex addiction and the family from the September 2015 conference, Restoring Intimacy, presented by the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. To hear more recordings from this conference, please visit our website at www.healthyintimacy.net. Thank you for listening.